0: Hold on, wait, just there. Just just before we start the podcast, I have to let you know about a free event we're running full of SMH and behavior strategies that you can use to support the kids that you work with. It'll run on Tuesday, the 7th of May, 2024, at 7 pm London time. We're going to take a real world behaviour issue submitted by a member of our community, pull it apart and offer solutions and strategies. And this month, we're focusing on strategies for managing a low level behaviour in class. Our aim is for you to walk away with lots of actionable ideas and strategies that you can use straight away in your school. And did I mention it's completely free? Everyone's favourite price. We're limited to 300 spaces though, so grab yours today before they're all gone. I've put a direct link to the registration page in the episode description, so all you have to do is tap on this episode in your podcast app and you'll see a link to the webinar. Just follow that link and enter your details. I can't wait to see you there.
1: So how does it impact their education? When they're sitting in a classroom and they're overstimulated or they're dysregulated sensory-wise, they're just not able to participate. They're not able to keep up with their peers and they fall behind. And as they fall behind, it becomes a stigma of learning support or intervention or bad report cards. And it only compounds the problem over time.
0: around the world, so you'll get to hear the latest evidence-based strategies before anyone else. This is the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. Hi there, my name's Simon Currigan, and welcome to the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. While other podcasts are suave, slick, professional and prepared, we're more like, it's midnight on a school night, we're still in the pub, we've had one too many, and do you know what? We really love you, mate. I'm joined today by my co-host, Emma Shackleton. Hi, Emma.
2: Hi, Simon.
0: Emma, I'm going to break from tradition a little bit today. I'd still like to ask you a question, but this one's a little bit different. Okay. I'm going to play you a mystery sound, and I'd like you to tell me what
2: you think it is. Okay, sounds fun. Go for it.
0: So, any thoughts?
2: I like this game. Is it-, <laughs> it sounds to me like it's either some kind of garden machinery, but knowing that you've made the sound, did you make the sound with your own fair hands or did you record it from somewhere?
0: I got it off the internet. I've not personally made the sound.
2: Maybe one of those... Pencil sharpener, jobbies that you wind the handle and it sharpens the pencil. Electric pencil sharpener.
0: Oh, right. interesting. I can see why you've gone with that. And I will tell you the answer, I promise, only after today's interview.
2: Oh, what? You're going to make me wait till then? Yeah, I know. All right. So if you won't tell me what the sound is, at least tell me how it's related to today's episode. So
0: today we're going to share my interview with David McIntyre on the subject of sensory overload and supporting kids with sensory differences. David's actually got a fascinating personal story to tell about his own child's autism and how, as a parent of an autistic child, he went on his own journey learning about sensory needs. And not only that, but he's come up with a 21st century solution to supporting students with those needs, which is a really clever evolution of the sensory room. And we'll share what that solution is in the interview as well.
2: Oh, wow. That sounds exciting. So before we jump into that interview, if you haven't given us a review yet, what are you waiting for? If you're enjoying School Behaviour Secrets, please could you open your podcast app now, give us an honest rating and review, And what that does is it tells the algorithm gods to share the podcast with other teachers, school leaders and parents who are also interested in improving SEMH for our kids. And now here's Simon's interview with David McIntyre.
0: Right, I'm super excited to welcome David McIntyre to the podcast today to talk about supporting children with sensory needs. But first off, David, can you tell us who you are what you do and what your expertise is.
1: Hi Simon, thanks again for this great opportunity to talk to your people. So, David McIntyre, I'm the founder of Cobby. In my past life, I was an apprentice toolmaker, uh, then a designer, and uh, I've spent the last 25 years of my life designing products for companies all around the world.
0: I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion today because we're going to be talking about helping kids with sensory needs, and what you've done is someone from outside the teaching profession is you've spotted a problem and you've identified. A more powerful solution, I think, than what's already in schools. But we'll get onto that in a minute. Your journey supporting kids with sensory needs and autism really started with your own daughter. So, can you talk us through your story?
1: Sure. A lot of things happened actually, but my my daughter was diagnosed seven years ago. Now she was two and a half, and it came as an awful blow to me, tell you the truth, and my wife, of course. But my wife had actually seen the developmental issues coming up. I hadn't, and when I got the diagnosis, I'm afraid. I reacted quite negatively to it. Poor occupational therapist that gave me the news had a a very strong meeting with me. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I I think I questioned her credentials to diagnose a child at two and a half years of age. It it was incredible. What do you think was behind that resistance? Um, I'm dyslexic myself. And being uh, neurodivergent is not easy in a world that's built for neurotypical people. And um, it just reminded me of my struggles, my own personal struggles. It's not for the faint-hearted, and you have to be quite a strong character to come through the right way.
0: It sounds like your first reaction was an emotional one.
1: Very, very much so. And autistic people won't like this, but as a parent, I went through the, the mourning se- sequence. I was very worried all of a sudden about my the future of my daughter. I didn't know how capable she would be to be independent living at that young age. Would she, in fact, be able to speak? It's one of the th- things to teach you. and. Even if she could speak, would she continue to speak because one of the things you learn is that they can move on the spectrum the person can move so today they could be verbal and tomorrow they could be nonverbal and that's a frightening thing to talk to a, a parent about so yeah, very worrying, very worrying however, it came to a head actually when we were getting trained about autism where I started to realize this is not the end of the world this person's life is not over at two and a half years of age, and maybe there was something that we could actually do to help instead of. Uh, worrying about it and be proactive, if you like, instead of reacting to bad news. Because everybody gets bad news all the time and we we move forward, don't we?
0: Yeah. How did your daughter present at home? I mean, this is before going to school. What was she like in those early years?
1: Well, I guess the biggest thing for me was her bedtime, actually. Ava would get very, very upset at bedtime, even at a very, very young age. We were told at the time, you know, I, I, you read the books and you ask for expert advice and they say, you know, Put your child in the cot and let them cry it out. Well, we done that one night, one night only. We never did it again. Ava physically hurt herself in the cot. We found her that she was hurt herself. She was bleeding. She had smashed her face against the cot wall. So whatever sensory stuff was happening for her, that sensation of falling asleep was very, very frightening for her. And she was doing everything possibly awake. And so for four years of her life, myself and my wife would actually sleep with her. And swaddled her in her arms, not forcefully, but just to stop her actually hurting herself. It was hard going. When I remember now, you forget these things as a parent, but it was very hard going for her and for us, of course, because we weren't getting any sleep. And we found melatonin, which helps greatly, actually, melatonin uh, jellies. Yeah. Uh, we started bringing them in for America. They're illegal here in Ireland. We can't buy them. You can buy them in Spain, but you can't buy them here. And uh, now she takes one melatonin, usually before she goes to bed. And she sleeps till maybe 6 a.m. <laughs> but up she gets and she's ready to go. I mean, it's incredible. It's like the battery's suddenly um, going. It's it's incredible. It's 7 a.m. every morning she's up. She'll come into us. She'll make sure her mother is aware that she's awake. And she'll go downstairs then. And she's at an age now where she can make her own breakfast. And she uh, sits down and watches our cartoons until everybody else wakes up, uh, which is great. You know, but um, it's just interesting how things have progressed.
0: You must have had concerns for her then moving into like school age and how she would do at school?
1: Yeah, well, it's called early birds training. That's what we got here in Ireland. And we met a lot of different parents of different age uh, people. So, you know, some people had children, they're 15 years of age and were in secondary school, uh, mostly primary school. That's when we started hearing the stories about what was happening in the education sector. And listen, I wasn't, I should say this, I was not a big fan of the education sector. Being dyslexic myself, I didn't go through the education Uh, the right way. That's a story I'll dive into maybe as I explain this. But for the likes of Ava, for instance, her peers or autistic people that were around her were being excluded from the class for behavioural issues that was caused by sensory stresses. Yeah, it could be even sensory stresses from the day before could be causing issues the day after. It's remarkably complex. So what we were hearing is that the school's response was expulsion. It was short days. It was not enrolling children with autism in the first place. This is in Ireland here.
0: This is not very long ago.
1: No, this is seven years ago. And it continues to this day, by the way. It's not as bad as it was, but it's still there. One of the things was that spending long periods of time outside the classroom. So even though they were included in the school, they were actually spending a lot of time out of the mainstream class, which they were walking halls or they were in a sensory room for, for hours. Now, my initial reaction was, well, the school should be doing more. But luckily, when I started going to the schools and talking to them, I realized that this is a problem beyond their capability. And we actually built a prototype which failed because of that, because I took it from the person that needed the help's point of view first and not the school's point of view. The product failed and I lost a fortune. But when we looked at it again, and we brought it in the school's point of view, it all of a sudden worked very well.
0: And this was a product around sensory rooms, supporting kids with sensory needs. It's just, yeah. if you could just unpack what that product was.
1: Yeah, the schools are underfunded. They're always underfunded, by the way. But in 2008, the law changed around the world, making it the basic human right for every individual to be educated within their own community. And that's despite disability. It's a very simple thing. And what it means is that people with disabilities are allowed to go into mainstream education. In fact, it's their human right to be educated there. Um, The governments around the world signed the declaration uh, back in 2008, as I said, but didn't enforce it. So it was now on the schools, incumbent on the schools to react. And they're already understaffed. They're already underfinanced. And all of a sudden, they have this cohort coming in, and it's very, very difficult.
0: And they're undertrained. often. They don't have the knowledge they need to begin to support kids.
1: Training is great, but training is as good as the person providing the training, right? Yeah. And it's sold to the school. There's no governmental body saying, this is the training you must get. And therefore, we can set a process of training and then adjust the training as it changes and therefore reinforce the new training. It seems to be ad hoc. It's very segmentated. And some of it is inappropriate. So training is great if it's the right training. But what does that look like? I couldn't tell you, by the way. We do our own training that we've developed ourselves. And then what you have as well is you have teachers are burning out like on a level that was never seen before. It's incredible. You have teacher assistants that are coming in to fill up the space that is left from the teacher who are very qualified or not qualified at all. It's a big problem for schools and they're firefighting. Schools are firefighting. And this is just one of the problems that they're facing into.
0: In England, I've become aware of, you know, I'm going to be honest and put my hand up So I'm not quite sure what their role is, but there's a role now of an unqualified teacher teaching a class And for me, that's deeply concerning (laughs) because you've got at least 30 children's education and potential for someone who presumably hasn't had the training that you would expect from a professional in the room around teaching at all, let alone getting in the weeds with special needs and knowing about different conditions and how to support children and, and level the playing field.
1: No, no, no. It's true, though. It's a very worrying trend from a parent's point of view. I want my children to be educated by a teacher. They're trained to be educated by it. They're trained to educate. <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's they're qualified. They've gone through a training course and they have a profession.
0: He wouldn't want to be on a plane flown by an unqualified pilot.
1: It makes no sense. It's incredible. I don't understand it, but there's a huge shortage, I think, of teachers in the UK right now. And I think there's a huge shortage of weaving of teacher assistance and learning supports. I think they're very hard to recruit. There is a big problem here. And what we're trying to do is we're not just trying to help the school. We're really trying to help the student. Secretly, we're helping the school as well. But really and truly, it's all about the student and how do we get them back in the classroom.
0: I was a teacher in a classroom once, and I would see all sorts of children with all sorts of needs. But I would only see their experience in the classroom. Or in the school. As a parent, what was the impact of having unmet sensory needs on your daughter when she got home away from the teachers? What was your perspective on that? What did you see? What did your daughter say? What was the impact of being in school all day at a human level on her?
1: It's a great question. Now, I've got three neurodivergent children. I'm neurodivergent myself, and uh, I've got one neurotypical child. I don't know how that (laughs) happened. We want all hold that against her. So how does it impact their education? When they're sitting in a classroom and they're overstimulated or they're dysregulated sensory-wise, they're just not able to participate. They're not able to listen to the teacher. They're not able to keep up with their peers and they fall behind. And as they fall behind, it becomes a stigma of learning support or intervention or bad report cards. And it only compounds the problem over time. This is my experience of school as well. My Youngest daughter, she's not a seeker or an avoider. She's actually a, a sensory type, which is, is one of the types of sensory need. So noise, touch and um, light affect her greatly and impacts her ability to learn in the class. For instance, she's 10 now and she's only started to really re- learn how to read. That's an impact on her ability to take in information. We know that at a young age, four to six, for instance, people, are, it's very, very hard to be sensory regulated in the classroom. So you have to see that as a gap in their learning for the first two years of their education. And only after that can they actually start to catch up. So they're two years behind their peers. So I guess the impact really is mental health impact, where the person feels they're falling behind, even though they're, they're, they're very intelligent. It's probably a fundamental problem in education in itself, how we measure uh, success and failure. My daughter comes home every day dysregulated. So she kind of masks it. She tries to hide it uh, every day. And uh, she comes home and we have a a swing an industrial level swing in the backyard. And that's because she is on it and she gives it hell for leather for about a half an hour. The minute she gets to school, the bag goes down on the ground. She's out in that swing and she's swinging to try to regulate and get her mind thinking again. So that's interesting. My oldest daughter is different. She is a facial expressions and body language is, is what she cannot read at all. I, I must say I struggle with it a bit myself. For her, she no longer masks. She, she's now 13. But she went through that, that as well, where she, she's a bystander. She stood out from the crowd. She didn't know what the game was. But after a time, she became comfortable with that. Maybe one of the factors is that myself and my wife fully understand um, the issues that they're facing. And are able to communicate with them in an efficient manner, if you like, that helps them. And I think that's helped my oldest daughter because she's highly intelligent. However, she's uh, not very socially intelligent, if you know what I mean. So trying to explain to her exactly what's happening in the the schoolyard. She's very happy. She's actually succeeding in school now in in regard to her testing and uh, her ability to keep up with her peers. She's now transitioning into secondary school. And uh, I was rang up by the school that she's going into. The person said on the line, she says, David, your your daughter uh, has an autism diagnosis. I said, yes, she does. Uh, So she will be going into uh, the ASD unit, they call it over here, an ASD unit, which is it's a building usually apart from the main school. Sure. So, again, they're included, however, they're apart from. But in fairness, they do deliver a lot of specialized. It's a six to one ratio as well with the teacher, which is really good for a lot of kids. Don't get me wrong. I just don't like the word ASD unit. I think it's completely wrong. But she presumed that my child would be in the ASD unit. Now, the ASD unit has different break times, different schedules. So she would be excluded from her friends automatically.
0: As a teenage girl, that's going to be important to her.
1: Usually impactful. And it was the approach from the school, I think, that was wrong. They presumed, because my daughter had a diagnosis, that she belonged in this unit. Where, in fact, if they rang me and said we see that your daughter has a diagnosis of autism. Would you be able to come in and we can walk through her needs? Yeah, And that would have been a better way of communicating with, listen, we understand there could be issues and we are here to help and get this transition done correctly instead of presuming No, we're going to segregate your child in this ASD unit because she has a diagnosis.
0: Yeah, a personalized response to her needs versus the automaticity. You have this label. Therefore, you are going in the. Yeah,
1: advocacy has played its part in making people aware of autism. And that's great. However, advocacy has also played a part in people seeing the extreme side of autism or the higher need level. Instead of a person that would present like me as autistic and is quite able to defend themselves or to compete in the real world. The presumption is that if you have an autism diagnosis that is on the higher level of need, that's not correct. Most people with autism are the people that are creating the new science that we have. There's the people that are creating the new inventions and there are people that are creating the vaccines for COVID, for instance. These are the people that are free thinking there. They think outside and they put things together that were never put together before. I think schools should be embracing the cohort. So I left school at 15. I had to get out of it for my own mental health. When I look back at it now, I was very lucky that I could get an apprenticeship. There's so much pressure on people all the time now. It's it's relentless. It's It's relentless pressure to be... The best or to be outperform and get the great job. And I don't know. I think our communities are breaking down. And I think it's been happening for a long, long time. I can only walk you through my own journey there in school, was very, very confusing. Continuously falling behind my classmates and f- frustrated because I, I didn't think I was stupid, but uh, it was very much employed that I was and confused about that because you don't know where you sit then within your peer group. And I, I guess I started withdrawing away from my peer group then. And this is not a sob story, by the way. I got out at 15, I got uh, a trade, I grasped that. Computers helped me greatly. Without computers, I wouldn't have been a designer. I was way ahead of my peers all of a sudden. I was actually a top a top guy if you put me in front of a computer, and so I was able to negotiate that, but I would walk into a meeting, and I would know the answer to the problem <laughs> within <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> and I would usually tell it. I'd say, "Listen, this is what we need to do." And of course. Everybody else is looking at you going, well, how the hell did you come up with that answer? And it again is the neurodivergent mind. We're able to just put the pieces together and come up with the solution.
0: An hour into the meeting, you go, why the hell are we still talking about this? I've given you the answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What works is some other engineer sitting there would regurgitate what I would said an hour ago. All of a sudden, everybody would go, oh, yeah, that's the answer. And, and, the, and the meeting would end. Like that's awful, frustrating. It builds into resentment. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, you stop giving your ideas, don't you? And that's what happens in school. You're you're separated from your peers. There's a stigma attached to it, rightly or wrongly. Uh, young people react differently to circumstances and there's a lot of pressure on young people to be part of the gang or be part of the the trend that's popular and that won't change by the way i'm sure lots of them look back when they're 40 and kind of go oh my god so what we need to do i think is create an education system that supports everybody's level it's going to be difficult because what you're going to have to do is rethink how we measure because we have to measure the whole society is built around measurement However, how do we build on strengths instead of trying to enforce weaknesses, and weaknesses? I was never very much good at writing essays, but I was forced to do it all the time. I was better off in the engineering shop learning how to measure than I was how to write an essay, for instance.
0: You used the word earlier, survive. And for more and more kids, the aim of the education system is to survive it rather than to thrive in it. And as a teacher, I've heard that so much in the last sort of 12, 18 months. You know, as someone who came into education to support and help kids achieve their best, it's just heartbreaking when you hear that word over and over and over and and, and shameful to some extent on on the education system. We touched on that you were asked to design a sensory room for schools. Yes. For listeners who are new to sensory rooms or sensory environments, can you just quickly explain what they are and what their purpose is before we move on to your evolution to the next step in in terms of sensory support.
1: Sure. And and by the way, I'm Irish. It's very hard to stop me talking when I get going. um, (laughs) The problem was children with regulation issues. I was actually asked, it's incredible how things come together sometimes. I was made redundant from my job and my daughter was diagnosed about a year previous. So we understood that there was an issue there sensory-wise and we had a, a basic understanding. And then I was asked to... Design a sensory room for a local school, which was really the step forward in my thinking. Because sensory rooms, they're usually lights, they are mirrors, they're fiber optics, and I guess people look at them as a visual stimulus, a calming stimulus, if you like, uh, or a tactile.
0: They're usually quite small spaces, aren't they? They can
1: be, they can be, but a fully equipped sensory room is very expensive and needs an occupational therapist to be run correctly, and that's what we found. The first question I had. Because I I knew from my own daughters that there was different sensory needs and sensory types. And I couldn't understand how a sensory room actually met that need. You know, for instance, if you were understimulated, I could see how maybe a a sensory room could help calm you down. If you were understimulated, how could actually help bring you up if if it had all the flashing lights and stuff. But if you're overstimulated, how did that same stimulus calm you down? So very interesting. It's very simple question. But how does it adapt? To everybody and of course it doesn't that's the real issue with sensory rooms there's no real issue otherwise some people love sensory rooms and i get it they're very nice areas
0: but kids with different needs need different sensory input so it makes sense that they're not giving them all of the same thing is not going to have the same outcome it's going to work for some and not for others
1: it doesn't work the mass populace that's the problem and if it's set up for the individual at the time of their what what they're needing it, they're, they're perfect, but nobody knows how to do that except an occupational therapist. So the real innovation that we did was we standardized the sensory room because sensory rooms are always different. And what, the second step is we, we digitally linked the occupational therapist to that sensory room. And what happens now is when we go into a school, the school identifies to us whether they have a diagnosis or not. It doesn't matter for us. They fill in a very simple questionnaire that we've developed. And once that profile is up, it goes to our occupational therapist and they create a tailor-made experience for that person. They also put in a schedule of the break when it should happen. And we really take care of the whole sensory need of that person. And we actually measure as well the before and after. So if the program isn't working, our OTs will come back and recreate that experience to match it better. How it works for schools in primary schools is the person is has a scheduled sensory break. There could be more than one, but usually it's one. They go to the cubby. The cubby remembers who they are and adapts the environment to their sensory need.
0: I've seen these on video. Can you paint a picture of what a cubby looks like? Because there might be some people imagining when you say the sensory room changes running into a physical space and taking some lights out and putting some music on, and you know, actually physically changing the room, like a theatre where things come on and things go off very gracefully.
1: Oh, yeah, we made that mistake. That's a great story as well, actually, how we figured that one out. So as I said, I I lost all my money at the beginning because we we, we had a great idea, but we didn't execute it very well. But anyway, so it's a freestanding structure. It's about two metres square at its base, so it's quite big, and it's wheelchair accessible. And in there is lights, sound, and a visual. And there's different seating options In There's two different swing seats, and there's a kind of reception chair. And what happens is that we categorized in all the visuals and the music. So for instance, we have three different levels. We have uh, calm, medium, and alert, or, or energize. So if the person is understimulated, we can give them an energizing program. If they're overstimulated, we can give them a calming program. Now, we invented the medium setting because our calming programs were too good. They were putting students to sleep. So we have a medium setting now so that we can actually measure the impact, if you like, of the sensory break. So when you walk into a cubby, it could have nothing in it. It could be just a blank space. If you're overstimulated and you're looking to shut everything down, or if you're looking for stimulus, we can have the visuals and music going that are categorized and targeted for you to help you energize or calm.
0: So it's almost like the holodeck from Star Trek. It changes depending on the individual's child needs. So when one child walks in, they'll have a different experience. They might see things projected on the wall, and there might be certain things available for them. And when the next child walks in, it, it could look very different.
1: It is very different, yeah. So we have different videos, for instance, and different music types. And again, they're all categorized, but we're looking at special interests, So, someone likes turtles, for instance. We have a whole experiences around turtles. Someone likes bubbles again. If they like waterfalls, we have lots of different waterfalls. If they like science and math, we usually put on space. So, we try to get it locked into someone's special interest and then categorize it in a way that helps them uh, regulate their sensory needs. And what we're trying to do is get someone in the middle.
0: And this is related to an OT report. So, so an OT looks at their needs from the questionnaire and kind of designs what needs to be put in the cubby. So the schools don't need to do that. It's kind of set up for them.
1: What we call a turnkey a solution now. What happens is when the cubby is put in, we take over the sensory needs of that person. That's what we do. We develop the programs for each person. We measure the effectiveness of them programs. And then we create new experiences for that person if the program isn't working. Now, I can tell you the exciting thing is that we do know that with 40,000 sensory breaks delivered in Ireland so far this year, which is a lot of sensory breaks, we know that the occupational therapist programs are 90% accurate.
0: That's that's impressive.
1: It's really, really impressive. That means that we're able to uh, reduce sensory stresses in the classroom by 75%. And this is a huge difference for everybody, for the student for their peers and for the teachers.
0: What kind of impact do you see on the kids Mm. from that kind of success? We've talked about the difficulties sensory needs can have in school and the impact on the kids, but when those sensory needs are met in a proactive way, how does that change things for the kids?
1: Getting education is so fundamental to a healthy life. It's incredible the impact education makes. And so this company is really about participation. And what that means is, we're looking for that child to go back into the classroom and participate in the day activity. And that's what we measure. And we know we're very successful there. So that, that's the impact. That person is able to go into the class and do their work. As my daughter will tell you, unscrambles the brain so that they can go back and they can actually participate. So that's what it's all about. But however, it's got bigger than that. Since we started that program, participation now means being able to go into the stand in Aviva Stadium uh, for the rugby match, for instance. They've got a copy right beside the stand. They didn't put up in a room somewhere. It's literally right behind where the where the people are are shouting and roaring and the idea is that if you need a sensory break, they're available to you so now instead of being included in a room somewhere they're actually participating in the crowd. Now, listen, it's not for everybody, but I can guarantee you there's a lot more in the crowd than there used to be. So that's what we're about. and That's the impact. However, we've had such great stories from parents. It's humbling. We know that Kobe resonates at home after school and it's important and it's becoming more important. And I can tell you why. A lot of children mask during the day, and then they let their feelings be known to their parents when they get home. We know that if we can give them a sensory break just before they go home, that that doesn't happen. It, it falls greatly. But again, we're also learning that children using Cubby are going home and they're now doing their homework or they're playing with their siblings. And I can I can point you to a lot of parents that would, would be able to identify if their child hadn't had their break that day. They'll know straight away. And uh, usually they pick up the phone and wonder why. So it's a halo effect. It seems to last for, for some people for, for the whole day. It's an incredible story or an incredible impact that we're making on people's lives. And the teachers' lives, the impact is less stress in the classroom. We now have teachers using Cubbies all the time. Incredibly, some teachers are coming in before school starts to have 10 minutes inside Cubby. Put one in lately into a school and the principal uses it every day before she goes home. And now she she says that she's decompressed before she even gets to the car. And I think that's an incredible thing as well. So we're very proud of that. And Cubby is becoming more for everybody than just neurodivergent children. It's now becoming for young adults, adults, and neurotypical people, as we call them, people with anxiety. Anxiety is a huge problem. So we now see students of all types using copy every day. And we had intended that, by the way, at the beginning, but we weren't sure would it happen. And when we put it into a third level college here in Ireland, we started seeing more neurotypical people using it at exam times, for instance, to help them de-stress, which it's a great impact. So I think it's It impacts the whole school, not just neurodiverse.
0: And I like the way here you're talking about using this proactively instead of reactively throughout the day to meet needs. Neurodivergent, neurotypical. You've got someone with building these and they're using it to manage it proactively rather than being in a state where they're overwhelmed. And what do I do now? And that's when it becomes really powerful, isn't
1: it? It is. So the ARCA patient therapist, part of our questionnaire is to try to ascertain when the sensory stresses really happen. We try to give that person a break before that. But also we categorize the impact. We're looking for the most severe impact on their ability to participate. And they're the children to get prioritized. You know, a lot of companies would look for the lower hanging fruit. We're, we're actually looking at the, at the top and we're trying to be the, as someone described us lately, we're like the Formula One of sensory processing. If you like, <laughs> cubby breaks as well. It's important to note that they're very short. A typical sensory break in a cubby would be 10 minutes. And we know that after 10 minutes, they're able to go back to the classroom. One of the things we did at the beginning was limit the amount of time someone can spend inside the cubby. Now, a cubby, by the way, has no locks. And we, we have inherited some trauma from years back where people were being isolated in small spaces. We are fully aware of that and we understand it. All we want to do is help the person. And we train our schools about consent. Uh, so cubby is never used as a reward or it's never used as a punishment. So that's awful important as well, that people understand that this is all about consent. And we train about consent and we help our schools understand what that means.
0: I feel like we're just getting started, David, but we're almost running out of time. If you're a teacher or a school leader, or a parent listening to this podcast, what's the first step you can take today to start helping your pupils or your kids with their sensory needs?
1: Uh, well, you can buy a cubby, of course. <laughs> will would certainly help you. How can we find out more about cubby? You can go onto our website. It's www.cubby.co.uk for, for the UK and .ie for the Irish. Uh, lots of videos there. Or you can contact us at info.cubby.ie uh, or .co.uk. Um, there's lots of ways of getting through it. I, I guess, you know, the best thing to do is to maybe declutter, declutter the spaces in the classrooms. Sometimes they're very, very busy and lots of colors and lots of bright lights and stuff. Yeah. Little steps like that. I, I know that if you could take the brightness of lights down, just a notch or two, it could be very powerful. Simple things like that could very much help. I noticed a lot of adults using fidgets. I wouldn't just give them to the neurodivergent in the classroom. I'd give them to all the kids. And encourage that to fidget with them because we all stim. It's called stimming. So we all stim. Absolutely. How about making it for the group instead of just for the individual?
0: We ask this of all our guests. Who is the key figure that's influenced you or the book that you've read that's had the biggest impact on your approach to supporting children?
1: I got an inkling of this question coming. Simon. And I'm going to answer it in the only way I can. I really didn't read being dyslexic. I had to learn how to read and write again when I got an office job. And it's still a work in progress some 25 years later, believe me. However, I read a book about General Patton. And I know this might be a bit funny, but in it, there's a chapter about dyslexia. He was dyslexic. And it was the first time Anybody had explained to me what dyslexia was and how it had affected this person. And it was a revelation. I read all the time now, would you believe, because of that one book. I, I read all about the Roman Empire. Uh, the British Empire is, is one of my favorites right now. The World Wars, I read a lot about those. The time that that author gave to the the issue of dyslexia it changed my life. It's incredible how a few words, a few lines in a book just opened my eyes to the struggles, that I wasn't the only one having these struggles. So... I guess that's had a huge impact on me. But the biggest impact was probably me. My girl's been born. I tell you, there's two different kinds of people out there. There's, there's people with kids and people without kids. And uh, we know who we are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a, a really powerful way to end the interview. Uh, David, thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thanks very much, Simon.
2: So what I really like about that is David's child had a problem becoming overwhelmed in their sensory needs And he didn't just leave it there. David became informed about that issue and found his own solution.
0: Yeah, he really applied an engineering mentality and approach and came up with a solution that's now supporting more and more children in school. Very interesting and a very imaginative guy. I really enjoyed that interview. And I'll put direct links to David's website and information about the cubby in the episode description.
2: And if you're working with a child who might have sensory needs then we've got a free download that can help. It's called the Sensory Checklist and it helps you to work out what sensory sensitivities might be affecting one of your pupils.
0: This is really important because if a student's brain is working overtime to manage sensory input in the classroom, that fuels dysregulation. So, you really need to know what sensory input your pupil is seeking to avoid, what sensory input, they're actually seeking. And then you can put in place classroom adaptations for that.
2: That's right. So are they drawn to loud noises, for example, or do they actively try to avoid loud noises? Or do they get startled by classroom noises? Do they avoid touch and pressure or are they seeking that out through rough play or hugging other children too hard?
0: Knowing a child's sensory input is so important to helping them manage in school, focus their efforts on their work and keeping them regulated.
2: To get our free guide, which also includes some sensory strategies you might not have come across before, head to beaconschoolsupport.co.uk, click on the free resources tab and you'll see a link at the top of the page. And we'll also put a link in the episode description.
0: And if you found today's show interesting or valuable, make sure you open up your podcast app now and subscribe so you never miss another episode. Subscribing will make you feel super lush, like a pigeon dressed in an elegant velvet smoking jacket at a Victorian gentleman's club. Barman, fetch me my brandy.
2: Coo, coo. Hang on a minute, Simon. Haven't you forgotten something? What do you mean? The mystery sound. I need to know what it is.
0: All right, all right. I'll play it one more time, okay, and then I'll give you the answer. So, before you were saying it was a
2: pencil sharpener, what are your feelings now? I still think it's a pencil sharpener or a, some sort of rotary gardeny thing. I don't know. Go on, put me out of my misery.
0: Okay, so the answer was, there is a rotary element to this. It was a sewing machine. Did you get that at home if you were listening? You know, if at home or in the car or at the gym, wherever you listen to this podcast?
2: Okay, okay. Now, we've got some proper closure on this issue. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today to wish you all a brilliant week and to say that we both look forward to seeing you next week on School Behaviour Secrets. Bye for now. Bye. Bye uh